Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4, verse 32. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Ephesians 4, verse 32. And the title of this morning's message is A Culture of Forgiveness and Grace. A Culture of Forgiveness and Grace. Ephesians 4, 32. Now, I guess I'd be right in saying that most of us are familiar with the story of Hansel and Gretel. Remember that classic fairy, tra- fairy tale? Uh, Maybe you read it many years ago. Maybe you've been reading it again recently with your kids. Two children are abandoned in in the woods to fend for themselves, hungry and alone and with no way of getting home, when all of a sudden they stumble across a whole house made of gingerbread and cakes and sweets and all sorts of good things. And from the outside, it's the most appealing and enticing house in the whole world, especially for two homeless lost and starving children. But what they discover on the inside, of course, is that there is a witch who is intent on devouring them. Uh, It's an absolute classic of a story as a reason why it's lasted through the ages, but it's also, to my mind, one of the most disturbing of all the fairy tales. The reason it's so chilling, I think, uh, well, actually, there's lots of elements that are chilling, but here's one of the big reasons, is because it's, it's such a juxtaposition, a, a contrast of two things that shouldn't go together. On the outside, this house looks so incredibly good, so incredibly inviting. It, it promises life and welcome and rest and satisfaction. But on the inside lies peril and corruption and rottenness and death. And why I think it's so disturbing a picture for Christians is that it's possible for churches to be something like the gingerbread house. It's possible for a church to look really good from the outside in its statement of faith, in what it believes, in the materials used to put the church together, in the gospel truths that the church teaches and the people embrace. But once you step inside and begin to get to know some of the people who live there, you might begin to wonder, are they heating up the oven and have they got dastardly plans for me? Now, that's a slight exaggeration, I know, but sometimes the culture and the values of the Christians in a church can spin off and and go out of kilter with the saviour that they claim to follow. But that's not God's intention for how the church should be. God's plan for his church has always been to gather a people who are in equal measure built around Christ-centered gospel truth and who then exhibit in their lives together a Christ-centered gospel culture. Uh, And these two things as well, they're not meant to be interrelated, uh, sorry, unrelated to each other, like they've just accidentally come together. They're meant to be intimately entwined. So that it's not just that you have a church that has good biblical truth, and it also happens to have some nice people in there who are pretty friendly. No, it's that genuine gospel truth centred on the person and work of Christ should create and shape and form a particular kind of people, a Christ-loving, Christ-like people. That is God's spectacular plan for his church. And so after we, uh, if you were here last week or you heard last week, we focused on Christ's tender heart of compassion towards sinners, towards us. Uh, And hopefully as we listened, our love for him and our appreciation for him was stirred again as we saw our saviour. I thought it would be helpful for us to look this week at how Christ's 
tender, compassionate, forgiving nature should in turn shape the way that we relate to each other. So to do that, we're going to look at Ephesians 4.32, where Paul writes these words. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now Ephesians, and I'm sure you've heard this before, like many of the New Testament letters, follows a familiar pattern. It begins with gospel doctrine, gospel truth, for three whole chapters. And then beginning in chapter 4, Paul begins to apply all of that truth to show the impact and the difference it should make to how we now live. Uh, And not just how we should live as individual Christians, kind of in our own little um, caves like a hermit on the hill, but much more how we should live together as the community of God's people. So how we should treat one another and help one another. How we should grow together as God's church and together pursue and live out a culture of grace. And then right near the end of chapter 4, in verse 31, the the last but one verse, he speaks of how we should put off all bitterness and resentment and anger. So harsh words and harsh attitudes have no place at all in the church. They ought to be intentionally put off and put away by us. But the question is, what ought we to put on in their place? If we're to put off all bitterness and anger and malice and slander, what ought we to put on? Instead, and in the final verse that we've just read, Paul identifies three things that ought to characterize our new life and our restored relationships with one another. Here are the three things, three things we're going to look at this morning. Generous kindness, heartfelt compassion, and gracious forgiveness. Generous kindness, heartfelt compassion, gracious forgiveness. He says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The first of these, generous kindness, describes how we should treat each other. How we should treat each other. The second, heartfelt compassion, how we should feel about each other. And the third, gracious forgiveness, how we should respond when sin inevitably comes in between us and rears its ugly head. So first of all, let's think about, let's look at generous kindness. Be kind to one another, says Paul. Now, um, the Greek word for kind here, uh, I'm sharing this because I think this is is great. It is krestos, okay? Which, of course, to the early Christians sounded a lot like the, the Greek word for Christ, Christos. So it would have seemed like an especially appropriate character trait for them to display and imitate, to be kind, to be krestos like Christos. But... Even if the only Greek we know is of the food variety, kindness should still feel to us like an especially appropriate Christian character trait. Because God himself is always unfailingly kind. Kindness is one of his essential attributes. It's his goodness in action. Because you see, part of the, a big part of the good news of the Bible is not just that God is morally good, but that he actually does good. He acts kindly, continually, towards people. And the Bible draws our attention to to his unconditional kindness again and again and again. So in Luke 6.35, Jesus tells his listeners that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. His kindness towards everyone, according to Romans 2 verse 4, is meant to lead all people to repentance. And according to Titus 3, it was the goodness and loving kindness of our God that appeared in Christ to actually do the work of saving us. Uh, And then one final one, Ephesians 2 verse 7 tells us that in the coming ages, so looking forward into eternity future, God plans to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, I I think here at least we see three clear and consistent ingredients to God's kindness in the Bible. First of all, as I've already said, it's his goodness in action. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling in God's heart that he has towards us. It's not something he withholds based on... uh, Sorry, in his kindness, he actually does stuff. He acts generously on behalf of others to do them good and to help them. He shows people kindness. So, so his goodness comes forth to do people good and show kindness. And the cross, of course, is God's ultimate act of kindness to us, that he gave his own son to die for us. So it's his goodness in action. His kindness is also full of mercy and generosity, meaning he, he doesn't show it or withhold it based on a person's merit or worth. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He saves us. Oh, praise God, he saves us like this. Not according to our works, but according to his mercy. Saving all who simply put their faith in Jesus. And thirdly, God's kindness towards his people will never end. It stretches, as we saw and heard there from Ephesians 2, all the way into the new creation. He won't run out of kindness to show to us tomorrow or the next day or the next day or for all of eternity. He has promised to go on acting in kindness towards us, towards every single one of his people forever and ever and ever. So what does all of this mean then for Paul to say to us here that we should be kind like God is kind? Well, it means first of all, that we should act kindly. We should do acts of kindness. We should seek actively ways to do good to others in both our words and our works. So so in our words, because kindness doesn't speak to corrupt or tear down, it speaks with intentionality to build others up and give grace to those who hear, Ephesians 4, verse 29. And it's acting in kindness in our works. Because godly kindness isn't just content to stand on the sidelines and look on at others and and just have kind thoughts in our hearts. No, kindness wants to get its hands dirty in doing good to actively be useful and helpful to others. A kind heart is always on the lookout for ways to actively serve and show kindness. Secondly... So firstly, it involves us acting in kindness. Secondly, to be kind as God is kind means to be generous with our kindness. Not stopping to work out, first of all, does this person deserve my kindness? Are they worthy of it? Working out maybe, could they pay back my kindness at some point? Am I going to get 
Am I going to receive from them at some point what I'm about to give to them now? Kindness doesn't worry if they've actually treated us unkindly in the past. Luke 6, verse 35, Jesus says, Love even your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So if we're going to show generous kindness even to our enemies... How much more should we be ready to do what Paul calls us to do, to show unconditional, generous kindness to one another as those who are brothers and sisters in Christ? And thirdly, to be kind as God is kind means to be kind without limit, without an expiry date on our kindness. It means we keep on helping and serving others with acts of kindness, even when a person takes far, far more from us than they give. Even when we don't get anything back, even when they need our kindness day after day after day without end. Now this, I know, is, is, a, is a tall order. It sounds pretty difficult, doesn't it? Maybe even almost impossible. How can we even begin to be kind like this with active, generous, unending kindness? Especially if, like me, you know how often you fail even amongst your own family and closest friends, to be as kind as you ought. Well, the first thing to realise, the first encouragement to realise, is that kindness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us, but better yet, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. Loves, and he loves to produce and grow the fruit of Christ-like kindness in our lives. And the second encouraging thing to realize is that he doesn't go and do this in us through some kind of immediate, instantaneous transformation. Because maybe you're looking at yourself and, and you're thinking, well, he hasn't done that in me. He hasn't immediately and instantaneously made me altogether kind. Well, I'll say to you this morning, that is okay. That is not how the Spirit works. He works through slow and gradual growth. And it's even reflected that in this morning's verse. When it says be kind, what Paul actually says is become kind. Become kind. He's describing a process of cultivating and growing in kindness. So it's rather like cultivating a garden. And I know we've got some amazing gardeners in the church and I know... Uh, We've got some not-so-amazing gardeners in the church. There there is a flower bed in our garden at the moment, which I have hoped for a long time could be transformed into something really amazing, something very cottage gardeny and interesting to look at. But up to now, I've done almost nothing about it. I'm just fighting off the weeds, pretty much. And I've just kind of hoped that something miraculous or instantaneous might, might happen magically overnight, or maybe that someone else would just come and do it for me. But that's not how gardens grow. And it's not how godly Christian kindness grows either. It takes intentional cultivation and time. It takes the power and the kindness-growing expertise of the Holy Spirit within us. And it takes our willingness to cooperate and strive diligently, tiny leaf by tiny leaf, to grow in showing more kindness to one another. That's what Paul has to say to us here 
about how we should treat each other in the community of God's people. Firstly, that we should grow in showing generous kindness. But he doesn't stop just there. That alone is not the whole remedy for putting away all bitterness and resentment and anger. He also has something to say about the way we should feel about each other. He wants to call us to heartfelt compassion. Heartfelt compassion. And so he says, be tender-hearted. And it perhaps shouldn't surprise us, it really shouldn't, that the Church of Jesus Christ, the the tender-hearted saviour of the bruised and faint of heart, as we heard last week, the church ought to be made up of increasingly tender-hearted people. And to be tender-hearted is to be full of compassion for other people, to be moved to compassion by the trials of those around us, to empathise and deeply care about the things that other people are going through, to feel almost physically deep down in our stomachs a gnawing sense of heartfelt sympathy when we see other people's needs and distresses. And in many ways, the the leaves and the shoots of Christian kindness that we were just talking about, that, that cottage garden full of kind words and deeds, that will never truly flourish unless it's growing out of the soil of a deep inward tenderness, a tender-hearted compassion and mercy. But as before, this is not something that is at all easy or that comes naturally to us. So once again, please don't despair if, like me, you're already feeling convicted that there is a real lack of compassion in your heart. Think, in fact, of how far God has already brought us. Just a little earlier on in chapter 4, Paul described who we once were before we met Christ. And he said that at that time, our hearts were truly hard and beyond feeling, especially towards God, but also towards other people as well. Our hearts, which God created to be soft and supple and easily moved by the needs of others, well, our hearts have become stiff and hard and dried out like like dried out leather our hearts had become callous and unfeeling but we are not now who we once were God has saved us and he has begun a radical change in us he's given us new minds and new hearts created Ephesians 4 24 after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness he has replaced our calloused hearts of stone with tender hearts of flesh. And it's because he's done that that he now appeals to us to become what he has already remade us to be, to become tender-hearted, understanding, compassionate, and loving, to become genuinely concerned with one another, to feel for each other, to sympathize with each other, to rejoice when others rejoice, And to mourn and grieve when others mourn and grieve. To count each other's difficulties and troubles as more important than our own. Now where can we find help to grow in this? Where can we find help? By looking again at the very heart of God towards us. Because if we're looking for an example of tender-hearted compassion, there is nowhere in all of the universe 
where we will see it more clearly and powerfully displayed than in the heart of God himself towards you and I. Just think first of all about what God said to Moses when Moses asked to see his glory. Exodus 34, this is what God said as he revealed himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God's compassion, his tender-hearted mercy is central to his glory. It's central to who he is. And while it was his kindness that was actively and vividly displayed in the act of sending Christ to die for us, behind that kindness and fueling that kindness was, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 78, a heart of tender mercy. God has a heart of tender mercy for us. Which means that even God's great acts of kindness, they grow out of the soil of his own deep, heartfelt compassion and mercy. And then it's, it's no surprise as well that what we see revealed repeatedly in Jesus is this very same thing all throughout the Gospels. We, we see that Jesus didn't come just like some kind of robot. He didn't come like a robot just executing a divine program of doing kindness and goodness. I've been programmed to come and do this. He's, you know, as if he was unmoved on the inside by the needs of those around him. You know, he's just coolly detached, but he's coming to do kindness. No, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus moved with compassion continually. And in response to a whole host of different needs and difficulties, we see him moved with compassion for the sick. And so he heals them. We see him moved with compassion for the hungry, and so he feeds them. We see him moved with compassion for the grieving, and so he comforts them. We see him moved with compassion for the spiritually harassed and helpless, those who are like sheep without a shepherd, and so he appoints messengers to go forth with him to teach them, to share with them his kingdom. Jesus was moved by every kind of need. And it was his compassion that led him each time to act in kindness towards those people that needed his help. And his heart hasn't changed one bit today. Just because he's not on earth anymore and he's ascended and exalted in heaven, his heart has not changed. He still has the same heart of deep, tender-hearted sympathy towards us in all of our weaknesses today. He is our sympathetic, compassionate, great high priest who invites us to draw near to him continually with every need so that, we, so that he might continually do us the kindness of giving us the help that we need. And then it's that same kind of deep-seated compassion that we so richly receive from him that he now calls us to put on and cultivate in our hearts towards one another. In fact, the more sure we are of his tender-hearted compassion for us, the more we believe it and know it and experience it and enjoy it, the more we think upon it and treasure it, the more it will thaw and melt our hearts and deepen our compassion for one another. Uh, it's like pouring, thinking upon the compassion of Jesus for us is like pouring fresh fertilizer upon the soil of our hearts. And again, that's why gospel truth comes before gospel culture. 
It's why this exhortation of Paul to be tender-hearted only comes after three incredibly rich chapters of gospel truth that, that hold up the riches of God's compassion and kindness. It's because of his mercy towards us that there should be no other place on earth so full of tender-hearted compassion, so full of tender-hearted compassionate people as the church. Because nowhere else on earth, no other people anywhere on earth have been the recipients of such tender-hearted mercy as we have experienced and received from God in Christ. So here's this cottage garden looking far better than my garden. This gospel community and culture that Paul is calling us to grow and nurture. A garden where plants and shoots of generous kindness are springing up everywhere, growing out of a soil of heartfelt, tender-hearted compassion for one another. So it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? God's plan and intention for his church. But finally, what happens when the inevitable weeds of sin start springing up right in the midst of all this as well? How do we avoid slipping back into bitterness and anger and malice towards each other when sin rears its ugly head? Well, thirdly and finally, Paul calls us to gracious forgiveness. Gracious forgiveness. Forgiving one another is what he says. And the meaning of this word forgive is literally to act in grace towards each other. To give each other an unearned, undeserved gift. To give each other the gift of forgiveness. Now the first thing this tells us is that in every church, however loving and Christ-like the people might be, we will inevitably still sin against each other often. That's why there's this ongoing need for forgiveness. So we shouldn't be surprised when sin happens. What should surprise us is a church where there's no evidence of gracious forgiveness. Forgiving one another is to be our regular and repeated practice. And it's a reciprocal thing as well. Do you see Paul says forgiving one another? So if it's you that needs to forgive someone today, it'll just as likely be you that needs to be forgiven by someone else tomorrow. Now, just a couple of things to be clear on. It's this is not about refusing to see any wrong in other people. Forgiveness is not about denying that someone has sinned. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, Christianity is always realistic. Certain people, says Paul, have done wrong to you. Forgive them. He does not say pretend that they have done nothing. That is, that, that is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is realizing to the full the wrong they have done and then forgiving them. And he goes on, it is only the Christian who can do this. For he has become able to look at the offender now with a new eye. Before he saw him as a person who was doing him harm, now he sees him as a fellow sinner. His heart has already become tender towards him. He is already kind in his outlook. And quite inevitably, the result is that he forgives him. It's worth mentioning too that to forgive is not necessarily the same as pardoning someone of all the consequences for their sin. Forgiveness is primarily about what takes place in our hearts towards another person. It's the putting away, as Paul's contrasting it here, the putting away of all malice and ill will towards that person who sinned against us and instead earnestly desiring their spiritual good. But let's be honest once again, forgiveness 
is not easy. Sometimes, in fact, forgiveness is very costly to us. So what help does Paul give us as we strive and struggle to become more forgiving? Well, he only gives us the the highest and most compelling motivation there could ever be. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here is the ultimate motivation for our forgiving one another. God's own forgiveness of us in Christ. And oh, how completely God has forgiven us as Christians. Notice, first of all, how free is his forgiveness. It is in Christ. We did nothing to deserve it or earn it. It was freely in Christ that he forgave us. Second, notice how full is his forgiveness. He didn't pick and choose which of our sins to forgive. He wiped out the whole debt at once. He wrote, paid in full across them all, over every one of our sins, with the precious blood of Jesus. So it is free and it is full. Thirdly, remember how forever his forgiveness is. Never again will he rake up our past sins and hold them against us. He has cast them all into the deepest sea. So that Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are eternally forgiven if we've put our faith in Christ. And fourthly, notice how assured is his forgiveness. Paul doesn't say, forgive others just as God in Christ has hopefully forgiven you. No, he says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. God assures us of his forgiveness repeatedly. It's past tense. It's a done deal. If we are in Christ, he has forgiven us and he has told us. And with that promised assurance, we are set free. So how then ought we to go about forgiving one another? Just as God in Christ forgave us. Just as God has forgiven us. So, firstly, our forgiveness ought to be free not dependent on whether the other person deserves our forgiveness or has done enough to make it up to us and earn it from us. It ought to be as freely given as God's forgiveness was given to you and me. And if there is a cost, then just as Christ bore the cost of our forgiveness, we ought to be ready to bear the cost ourselves to set another sinner free. Secondly, our forgiveness ought to be full Not picking and choosing which sins committed against us by another person we're going to forgive and which sins we're going to hold on to and hold a grudge against them for as things we could never forgive them for. We should forgive in full. Thirdly, our forgiveness should be forever. So that in forgiving, we're we're also committing never to rake up those past sins again in the future. Perhaps most temptingly, the next time they sin against us in the same way. And fourthly, our forgiveness should be assured. There shouldn't be any question on the, part who've, uh, on the part of the one who sinned that we've truly and fully forgiven them. Here's an important question. Should we then always forgive? Should we always forgive? And the simple answer is yes, we should. Jesus himself taught us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. So there's simply no question that as Christians, we ought always to forgive. But let's be clear, God forgives us not 
because we forgive others. He forgives us solely because of his kindness and his compassion and his mercy. But then, if we have truly received his forgiveness, if, if we have really understood his inestimable mercy towards us in Christ, that he has forgiven us of so infinite a weight of sin against him, we will in turn be ready and willing and even eager to forgive those who have sinned against us in ways that, however big they might appear, are still infinitesimally, can't say that word, small, compared to those sins we've committed against God. Uh, This, of course, was the very point of the parable that Jesus told of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Remember that parable? Uh, In that parable, Jesus tells a story of a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents, a debt that would have taken literally 200,000 years to pay off on a laborer's wage. But that servant fell on his knees and he begged his master for more time to pay it back and out of pity and compassion for him, the master did him the immeasurable kindness, not just of giving him more time, but of completely forgiving him his debt. All of it cancelled in an instant. But then that same servant goes out and he finds his fellow servant who owes him just just a, a few pounds a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he begins to choke him, and he demands that he pay him back right away. And so when the king hears of what this forgiven yet unforgiving servant has done, he summons him to him and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here's the lesson that Jesus drew from that parable. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, it's not that God only forgives us because we forgive other people, but it is that those who know what it is to be forgiven so completely by God will find in themselves a newly born desire to forgive. God's gracious forgiveness, it melts our hearts towards one another so that we want and even delight to forgive. Maybe there is someone here this morning or someone elsewhere in your life who has hurt you and sinned against you who you have yet to forgive. God is calling you from his tender, compassionate heart for you, he is calling you, clearly through his word this morning, to stop and think again on the vast extent to which he has so graciously and gladly forgiven you. He wants you to say with the hymn writer, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And then, to go this very day and forgive your brother or sister from your heart. To forgive them just as God in Christ has forgiven you. To forgive them freely and fully, assuredly and forever from your grace-softened, spirit-transformed heart. And Christ is with you to help you to do this. His heart is full of sympathy for you and he has promised to give you all the grace you need to forgive this person 
if only you'll turn to him and draw near to him and ask. Now let me share one final very quick encouragement. When we forgive and become a people marked by forgiveness, we show the world Christ's own heart for sinners. As one writer writes, by the practice of forgiveness, we have the privilege of being a living witness to the one we most love and who has loved us eternally and sacrificially. This is the ultimate motivation that gives us joy in our suffering, strength for obedience, love for his commands, and grace for forgiveness. My life will never deserve his love, but my life can reflect his love. And because I love him, I will live for him in what I say and think and do. Let us then together as a church together, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. Let us be imitators of God as his dearly beloved children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your immeasurably generous kindness in sacrificing your son for us. We thank you for your tender-hearted compassion that you have poured out your pity and your mercy upon us, that, that in seeing our sin, you move toward us to help us. And we thank you for your gracious, full and forever forgiveness, that you assure us again and again that all our sins have been washed away. Please, we pray, help us now together as a church to be imitators of you as your dearly beloved children. Help us to grow in kindness and compassion and in our eagerness to forgive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.